Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. I sent a text out to a couple of people last week after the getting home from, from the service. And I just want to share it with all of you. I wrote, something is happening when we gather, and I believe it's because of what is happening when we're alone. He's pouring out more and more. I had the thought in worship that people are going to be healed, set free, delivered without anyone so much as praying for them because of the presence of God. Keep pressing in and pursuing him. And I want to share that with all of you because I feel like every one of us is part of that, that, that there's something going on when we gather together because of what's going on when we're alone with him. That we're not, this isn't the highlight of our relationship with him. This is the overflow of our relationship with him. And so when you get a bunch of people that are seeking him in their alone time, when we're all together and we seek him corporately, I just think he can't help himself. And I honestly feel like we're just going to keep experiencing more and more because as you make room, he comes and fills. And I, I, I do want to say that like I feel like Dylan mentioned this first service, and when he said it, I was like, yes. Because I was getting, uh, thinking about the message all week, and I had this feeling almost like it's the beginning of the year. Like, literally, it felt like it was January, like the beginning of the year, and I know it's April. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's April. <laughs> you know what April showers bring? Pollen. It brings pollen. <laughs> But no, I honestly, I feel like it's the beginning of, of a year, and so I, I feel like that's, I feel like there's something new beginning in so many people's hearts and lives. And I feel like that is individuals, but I also feel like that corporately, that he's calling us into this place of just continuing to pursue and press into him. And I, I, I just want to warn you that I think he's going to come and put his finger on some things in your life that used to be okay that aren't anymore because of where he's going. Like, it's not he's going to come and say, hey, that's sin. I think he's going to come and say, hey, that's not my best. Right. And there was a time where that was okay, but that time has passed. Yeah. And I'm calling you into something new. And I want you to leave that behind because if you'll give that, I have something I want to give you. Yeah. And, and I, it shouldn't be a scary thing. It should be an exciting thing because you know what he did when you gave him your worst. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. When you gave him the shame and the guilt and the condemnation and all the things that you did and experienced that you are glad that will never be brought up again and that nobody will ever know about when he took those things from you. He took ashes and gave beauty. He turned the bitter into sweet. So what about when you give him things that are good things? What about when we give up things that are good things for the sake of better things? And I think that's what he's calling people into is this place of saying, like, hey, that was okay for a season, but that season's past. And for what I want to do, you're going to have to leave that behind. And so I just want to challenge us as a body to just be listening for that and be obedient to that. It's never to harm you. It's never to frustrate you. It's always to make you more like him. 
And in the end, you find that whatever it was he asked you to give up was never worth holding on to to begin with. And then you wish you would have went back and gave it up long ago. But maybe that wasn't the time. And I, there's this idea, you know, there is this, this moment in time where he takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and he brings us into the kingdom of light, where we go from being people who are in our minds at enmity to God to being a new creation in Christ. Old things passed away. Behold, everything becomes new. But then there's also this continual process of surrendering and yielding our life to him. And every time we think we've surrendered all, you know, we stand here saying, I surrender all, you know, and all that. And, and then he comes and he just kind of touches something. <laughs> but see, before it was this, this, like, there was this stuff that was bad. And he's like, hey, that's not good. I don't want you in that. I died for you to be set free from that. And you were like, yes, because it's killing me. Like, to give that up was no problem. It was like, why would I want to hold on to that? Of course I'll give that up. But now he comes and the things he touches, you're like, but I kind of like that. I kind of I want that. You've already taken this from me and that from me. God, I, I, I've surrendered everything except this. And he says, yeah, I want that. And he's so good and he's so patient and he's so loving and he's so kind that he'll wait. He doesn't snatch it from you. But he just keeps coming back. Tap, tap, tap. Still want that. So do I. (laughs) Yeah, but if you'd give it up. Because as you make room, he fills. There's only so much he can fill before something has to leave to make room for more of him. And, and don't let that be a scary thing. Don't let that be like, think about the, the, the widow with the oil. He says, go and get jars and don't just get a few. He's saying, listen, go get a bunch of jars because the Lord is going to fill them. And, and so he tells her, he says, go get a bunch of jars. Don't, go get jars and don't just get a few. And so the widow runs out and she gets jars from everywhere. And she brings and she sets these jars out and along comes the Lord and he just fills every single one of the jar and the oil keeps pouring until he gets to the last jar and there's no more room and then the oil stops. Who determined how much oil was poured out? She did. It wasn't as if God said, I have a limited supply and I'm only going to give this much so only get that many jars. He said, I have an unlimited supply. You determine how much of me you want and I'll keep pouring out as long as you keep making room. I'll keep pouring out as long as you keep making room. Because he's not wasteful. So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like you probably know what I'm talking about. Just give it to him. Watch what he does. And and then you'll, you'll, you'll look back after a time and you'll think, why on earth did I hold on to that when I could have had this? But he's so good. You ever think about this, that... Without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? What if he really wants you to please him? What if he actually wants you to please him? What if he provides these moments and these opportunities for you to live by faith because he really wants you to please him? He's not in heaven going, well, I guess if they have faith, I guess I'll be pleased. What if he's setting you up to please him because he really wants your life to bring him pleasure? 
He's not in heaven, like looking down, disapproving, and you figure something out, and he begrudgingly goes, oh, I guess I have to be pleased by them because they lived by faith. And then you know what it says in Hebrews? He's not doing that. What if he says to Gideon, like, I want to reduce you down to the point where you have to live by faith because I want your life to bring me pleasure. Not because I want you to be miserable and terrified and feel like a failure. I actually want you to live in a way that brings pleasure to me because in doing so, you'll experience the greatest pleasure you could ever experience. And if I was to tell you what I'm going to do, there would be no faith involved. It would be an exchange. It would be a transaction. I don't want to live in a transactional relationship with you. I want to live in a loving relationship with you. If I tell my wife, if I do this, will you do that? That's not love. That's transactional. That's manipulation. That's saying, I will do as long as you, and if you don't, then I won't. And then we both get, don't get what we want from the other because we're living to get our needs met, and suddenly we find someone else that's willing to do for less than she's willing to do for, or he's willing to do for less than he's, she's willing to do for. Next thing you know, you have people that are out of love that never really were in love. He has no desire to have a transactional relationship with you. He wants you to just do it out of love. But then what, he, what we receive in return is so much greater. But there's that opportunity in between the asking and the receiving where we live by faith and we give up, not for the sake of what we're getting, but for the sake of the one who asked us to give it up. And that's where faith is. And sometimes that process is longer than others. Sometimes it's immediate, right? You lay one thing down, you pick another thing up. Those times are easy. What, I mean, it's like, oh, I live by faith and I gave this up. And it's like instantly I received something in return. But then there's, there's times where he says, I want you to put that down. You put it down and you're waiting. You're like, God, okay, I laid this down and I don't see the fruit of it. And God says, just keep following me. It's okay, just keep following me. And you keep reminding him of what you laid down. And he's going, quit looking at that thing because you haven't actually laid it down because you're still looking back at it. But God, I laid this down. Have you? Because you seem pretty aware of that still. As long as they kept turning and looking back at Egypt and remembering what it was like in Egypt, they weren't fit to enter into the land that he had prepared for them. There was something in Egypt for you for a time. That time passed when he called you out. Quit looking back. He, he brought his people into Egypt. It was his plan. They weren't there out of disobedience. There was something for them in that land. And it got perverted and it got twisted and it turned into something that it wasn't supposed to be. But when the time came, he called them out and said, there's nothing left for you there. It's time for you to leave. And so they were called to actually turn their back on what was and face what is and walk by faith towards what could be. And if you're in that process right now where you've turned your back on what was, but you still haven't yet seen what could be, just be thankful for what is. And just keep walking and believing that what could be is better than what you could come up with on your own. And quit looking back and remembering the lemons and garlic. Because I promise you they weren't worth the beating. They looked back and they're like, we had lemons and garlic there. It's like, yeah, and you know what you paid for the lemons and the garlic? The price was way too high. Because sometimes we, we forget about what it cost us. We just remember what it tastes like. 
at some point you have to actually believe that you've been changed. At some point you have to go from asking him to change you to actually believing that you've been changed and living like you've been changed. At some point you have to actually believe that you're free to the point that you don't even look back and remember the things that you called good at the time because you've been so set free that you can't look back without remembering everything that you wanted to be set free from. And then you have to actually believe you've been changed. Think about Isaiah. He goes into the throne room of God. I, I wasn't, uh, we'll see if we get to the message, but I, you know, we need to talk about this for a second. <sighs> he goes into the temple, the foundations tremble with the voice of him who called out, and the temple's filling with smoke. And then Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lip, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He goes from a man who says, I have unclean lips, to being touched by God, to believing he's capable of going and speaking on God's behalf. Because he actually believed that in the moment when God touched him, something changed, and he wasn't the man who stood there before he was touched. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. An angel comes and touches him. It doesn't touch the rest of the people. Sometimes God does something to you that he doesn't do to everybody else, and you have to believe that you've been changed for their sake, not just for yours. He says, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among unclean people. And God says, okay, I'm going to change you. And the angel comes and takes a hot coal. This isn't like an old, black, cold piece of charcoal laying in a dead furnace. This is a living ember that is burning that he took with tongs. And he comes and he purifies Isaiah's mouth with fire. And then he says, and I believe he asked this to see, does Isaiah really believe that he isn't who he was before I touched him? And so the, the voice of God calls out and says, who will go for us? He doesn't say to Isaiah, now you go. Why? Because if Isaiah only goes because someone told him to and without believing that he's been changed, then he's only doing as good as what he can remember being said to him. He's only doing as good as the results that he sees. And when people don't change, then he starts to think, maybe I wasn't changed. But he says, who will go for us? And I think what he's doing is he's testing Isaiah's heart in that moment to see, does Isaiah really believe he's capable of speaking on my behalf now that I've touched him? And I think God wants to see that with every one of us. Do you really believe that you're capable of living differently now that he's touched you? Can you really live different? Can you really go and speak on his behalf? Can you really actually walk as a new creation and not let the people around you not being changed make you doubt what's changed in you? He says, he says who will go for us? Think about that high calling. God's saying, I have people that I want to reach and I need somebody that will go for us. Who can I send? And a man who two seconds before that said, I have unclean lips, stands in front of the Lord of hosts, ruined, and says, I'll go. Here I am. Send me. Why? He believes that he's not who he was the minute before God touched him. You're not who you were before he touched you. And just because everyone around you hasn't changed doesn't mean that you haven't. In fact, it's probably the reason that you have. 
It's probably the reason you have. Because he didn't, he didn't say anything about changing the unclean lips of the people that he dwelt among. He just needs one. I'm looking at hundreds. What could we do if we actually believed that we weren't who we were before he touched us? If we actually believed that our sins had been forgiven and our iniquity had been removed because we've been touched by the fire of God? What if we actually believed it's that easy for everyone else to change too? What did Isaiah do to earn having his mouth purified and being sent by the Lord on his behalf? He recognized who he was apart from God. And God said, now that you see, I'll change you so that you can go. That's all it ever takes, is us seeing who we are apart from him, and then he comes and we're never apart from him again, and now he trusts us with himself and says, go. Because he's still asking the same question, who will go for us? Who can we send? And if we're sitting around letting who we were dictate who we are, then we'll answer and say, I'm a man of unclean lips, I can't go. And I believe the angel's standing there with a coal in his hand going, didn't I touch them? How could they not believe that they're changed? Here's the thing. The reality of being changed is one thing. You believing the reality of being changed is a whole nother. Because he, Jesus said, then if you, can, if you continue my word and my word continues in you, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's the truth that you know that actually sets you free. It's the truth that you believe that actually sets you free. It's what changes you. Truth is truth, but believed truth actually brings transformation. I thought so. I, I preached out of this passage a little while ago, I, I don't know, maybe a couple years ago, and I feel like there's something in here I want to revisit. So open your Bible to John chapter 21. It's actually all about this stuff. You know, here's the thing, is that if we want to have the marriages that people were praying for us to have, it's very, very, very simple. It's not always easy, but it's very simple. Stop being selfish. If you have two people that are not living at the expense of the other, but living for the other, and are being filled with, with, with an intimate relationship with the Father so they actually have something to give, you cannot have a bad marriage. It's impossible. You find one issue that two people not being selfish can't solve. Come find me and tell me what it is. Yeah, but you don't know. It doesn't matter. Like, I'm not saying that in a careless, callous, non-caring way. I'm saying, like, it doesn't change the truth that to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself. And if you haven't denied yourself, that's probably why you have so much trouble following Jesus in your marriage. Yep. <laughs> that went over real. <laughs> Moving right along. Should I go back to Isaiah? Coals and lips and stuff like that. Because that's a whole lot easier to imagine a guy in a throne room having his lips touched than it is to imagine myself laying my life down to love my wife. But you know what? 
Like this stuff steps on my toes. It doesn't let me get away with anything. It takes away my rights. But the good news is when I stop holding on to them and I'm not trying to have rights, I actually find that my life is so much freer and so much simpler because I'm not trying to figure out how I can get what I want. I'm trying to figure out how I can give away what he gave me. I go from being a man who needs something from somebody to figuring out how I can give them what has been given to me because freely I've received, now freely I want to give. I go to, from a man trying to see what I can get from my wife to seeing how I can lay my life down to see her become who God created her to become. And in the process, she loves me like I couldn't even imagine. If you've ever had to tell your wife to submit because the Bible says to, you probably haven't loved her like Christ loved the church. I'm just saying, if you're having to use a verse to try to get your wife to do something that Jesus didn't even force us to do, which is to submit to his lordship, maybe you're not loving the way he loved. Well, I've tried that for two years, and you don't understand. Is that, like, where do you ever see Jesus looking at somebody and saying, I'm done laying my life down for you because I did it for two years, you still haven't changed? Yeah, I get it. You've been doing it for two years and they haven't changed. I'm not saying that that's easy. I'm saying that sometimes it is hard to carry your cross and follow Jesus. But guess what? Jesus is not standing there going, it's okay. You tried for two years. Give up on him. Why? Because he's not that way. He can't call you to be something that he would never give himself permission to be. What if we just talked straight with each other like this and we understood when we were getting married that this is what we're getting into and we're actually coming to this place to deny who we are, take up our cross and follow Jesus. Look, I get if there's an unbeliever in the situation and they leave and want nothing more to do with you and they won't believe and that kind of stuff, Paul says you're free. I get that. I'm talking about two people who would say they're following Jesus that say they want to have a good marriage. If that's what you're talking about and you say you're both following Jesus and you both want to have a good marriage, there is nothing stopping you from being in that place than selfishness. I promise you. Well, I tried that and it didn't work. You don't try it, you become it. Jesus didn't try to act sinful so that you could try to act righteous. He became sinful and so that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's a becoming. It's a changing. It's believing that when my lips were touched, I'm no longer allowed to speak unclean things because he actually cleansed my lips and he changed me. And it's also a believing that now I actually have the capability to speak the words of God because I'm no longer a man of unclean lips because I've changed. And I'm not sitting there waiting for another throne room experience and another coal. I'm believing that the experience I had was supposed to propel me into what he had for me. You notice Isaiah never went back and asked the angel to touch his lips again? Why? Because he believed that in that moment, God changed him and that what the angel spoke to him was true. This is what he said to him. He said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. He's saying, listen, those things that you were concerned about that made you think you were unclean have been taken care of in this instant. And the next thing God says, you notice he didn't ask who will go before there was someone there who could say yes. God's never spoke anything into your marriage that there isn't at least one of you capable of saying yes to. Don't look at me with that tone. 
You notice that God didn't say who will go for us before there was a man there capable of saying, here I am, send me. Why? Because he's not asking us to do something that he hasn't created a way for us to say yes to. So if he's saying who will go for us, that means he believes there's somebody there who can say, here am I, send me. Why? Because he believes what he did is enough. Maybe we should too. I mean that in the best way. Like this should excite us because then you open your Bible and you read what you're called to and you realize he would never say, could you go and do this unless he's made a way for me to actually say, yes, I'll go. He's never called me to lay my life down for my wife and love her like Christ loved the church. I can't love her like Christ loved the church. No, you can't. But if I come in you and you actually surrender to me, I can show you because it's no longer you who lives, but it's Christ who lives in you. So why can't your wife be loved like Christ loved the church if your life is no longer your own, but it's Christ that lives in you? I can't submit to him because he's not Jesus. Well, you're supposed to do all things as if unto the Lord. And if you're called to submit to him, then it doesn't say as long as they do. That's the problem. We give ourselves permission and we say, well, if they would, then I would. What if both people said, I'll do what I'm called to do, whether they do or not. And then all of a sudden you have two people who are living for what God's called them to rather than in response to people not doing what God's called them to do. I had no plans of this. I don't know why. I just am telling you, like, Dylan started talking about marriage, and this stuff starts rising up in me because I believe that we're supposed to live in a way where the world is provoked to jealousy because they want what we have in every area of our life. And I, listen, and if you've been, listen, my, my, my father was divorced before he met my mom. Like, this is, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who, 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 are, who are in Christ, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Like, if, if that happened and, and you got a divorce before you, you knew any better, or maybe you knew better and you just chose to anyways, or whatever the case is, like, you can only live differently now that truth has come. And you can only say from this day forward, I'll continue to do what God's calling me to do. That's it. So you don't go back and try to look back at Egypt and live with condemnation and shame. You just say from this day forward, if I can't change what was done, I'll change what I do. And that's it. Now the truth, that's what repentance is. I think differently because truth has come. So now the way that I think has changed. Now that the way that I think has changed, the way that I live follows suit. Did you turn to John chapter 21? All right. It says, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll, we'll also come with you. They went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Like, it's worse than not catching anything. You caught nothing. You ever notice these? Like, this is probably why Jesus was like, hey, guys, leave your nets and follow me. Because he looked at these skinny little kids. He's like, they're going to starve to death if they keep trying to make it as fishermen. They never catch anything. You ever seen them catch something? They'd been fishing all night, had caught nothing. The dawn came, they'd been fishing all day. They caught nothing. They put over their nets and nothing came. Like, I think Jesus was looking at them like, if, if I don't do something to these guys, like, they're going to be broken hungry. If you failed at something, it could be because you were doing the thing that you weren't supposed to be doing. 
Don't take condemnation in that, but listen for Jesus saying, this is what I'm calling you to do. So Peter and, and the disciples, it says, but now the day was breaking. Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, listen to full of faith, Jesus. Children, you don't have any fish, do you? You know, it's bad when Jesus doesn't even believe in your fishing ability. Seriously. Like, they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. If you don't recognize his voice, you can at least recognize his ways. If you're looking for him. One way or the other. Because it says they did not yet know it was Jesus. Jesus cast your net on the right-hand side of the boat. They cast. They weren't able to haul it in because of a great number of fish. And something inside of John went, wait a minute. I recognize this. It's Jesus. They see him, and they don't recognize him. They hear his voice, and they don't recognize his voice. But they see his nature manifest in front of them. And they see the fruit of the obedience that he called them to. And one of them, at least, says, that's the Lord. in the Bible. Maybe that's why Jesus said, if you don't believe me because of the words that I speak, then at least believe because of the miracles. And truthfully, I tell you, he that believes in me, the things I do, he'll do, and greater things. Maybe what he's saying is, is you could at least recognize that what I'm doing isn't humanly possible. Like, these are tangible things. Like, this isn't, you know, something that could be faked. It's you're sitting here fishing all night, catching nothing. All you do is go from here to here. It's just a little tweak, and suddenly you have so many fish you can hardly even haul it in. And one of them goes, that's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and a, already laid and a fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Father, I thank you. Uh, for your word, I thank you for your spirit continuing to do what you've been doing, and that's make it alive to us, open our hearts to receive it in Jesus' name, Amen. So, so a few things about this, it, you can't help but compare this to the very first time that Jesus comes and encounters Peter when Peter doesn't know who Jesus is, and he comes into Peter's boat and he preaches, and afterwards he comes to them and he finds them and they're they're washing their nets, they're done fishing, they're washing their nets. Jesus comes along, he needs to preach, so he hops into Peter's boat, he begins to preach, and after he gets done, he tells Peter, he says, uh, you need to go out into the deep water, 
and put your nets over, and you'll, you'll, you'll bring in this huge haul of fish. And Peter says, well, you already fished all night. What's he saying? Like, naturally, the best time to fish with nets is night when the fish are close to the surface of the water before the sun comes up, heats the water, and makes them shrink down. He's saying, we've already done it the way that is naturally possible, and nothing happened. Now what you're calling us to do doesn't make sense in the natural, but we'll do it. And so they have, they're, they're, he comes to them, and they're not even doing what they should be doing, and they're not even where they're supposed to be. And yet, the second time when he comes to them, they're right where they're supposed to be, doing what they're supposed to be doing. There's just a slight little correction that has to happen from one side of the boat they're putting their nets on. And I think it's pretty amazing that when you follow Jesus for any amount of time and you start to become like him, you start to learn what he's like, even when you get it wrong, you're so much closer to getting it right than you were before. Like Jesus comes and everything has to change. Like you're doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. How many of us were doing the wrong thing in the wrong place when Jesus came and found us? Listen, don't not raise your hand. Even if you were in church, you still were doing the wrong thing because you were made for him and you were living for you. Just some of us looked more drastic than others. People told me before, they're like, oh, I wish I had a story like yours. You have a story like mine. It just played out differently. Ultimately, every man had become a god unto himself and was living at the expense of others for themselves rather than living at the expense of themselves for others. All of us had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us was in need of a Savior. You were all doing the wrong thing and in the wrong place when he came and called you. Just some of us were in the wronger place doing wronger things. <laughs> it's the truth. When Jesus said to the Pharisee, when, when the Pharisee was like, if he knew who this woman was, he would never let him touch her. And Jesus looks at the Pharisee and says, I came into your house. You offered me no kiss. But this woman has come and she's washed my feet with her tears. She's kissed my feet. The one who's been forgiven much loves much. He wasn't saying she had so much more to be forgiven than the Pharisee. She just knew because hers was more obvious. Her heart was actually in a place where she believed that she really needed a savior. The Pharisees were in a place where they thought they were doing pretty good and didn't realize their need. That's the only difference. It's not like the lady had the capacity to love Jesus more because she'd been forgiven more. It was that she had the capacity to love more because she understood what she'd been forgiven for and her need for a Savior. And the Pharisee didn't. You know what's funny? Is Simon, there, there is a man in that room that doesn't know who someone is. And Simon thinks it's Jesus. Because the woman was an adulteress. The woman was probably a woman who gave herself or sold herself or whatever the case is. And Simon's thinking, like the Pharisee's thinking, well, if he knew who she was, she would never, he would never let her touch him. The man in the room that didn't know who someone was was actually Simon, because if he knew who Jesus was, he'd have been at Jesus's feet too with the woman. And he wouldn't have been worried about who was touching Jesus, because he would have been worried about getting to him himself. Sometimes people judge people and not realizing that it's actually them that doesn't see. He's looking going, 
this woman's unclean and she's touching Jesus. If Jesus was such a prophet, he'd know who the woman was and he would never. And all of a sudden, Simon's doubting Jesus because he sees a woman touching him that he would never let touch him. And sometimes we apply our standard to Jesus and we think if we wouldn't, then Jesus shouldn't. We should apply Jesus' standard to us and say, if Jesus would, then maybe we should. If Jesus wasn't afraid of becoming unclean by being touched by her, maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe we should believe that what's in us is greater than what's in them and that we actually carry the answer. So come and touch. All you're going to pull on is Jesus because it's no longer I who lives but Christ who lives in me. See, we say these things. We, put, we buy signs at Hobby Lobby that say this stuff, and we hang it up in our house. I mean, come on, Chip and Joanna Gaines stuff, you know, like pallet wood with this spray painted on it, so rustic chic, and we hang it up in our house, and it says, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. But then when we get into a situation, the last thing we do is consider what Christ would do, and we start thinking for ourselves and applying our standard to Jesus and saying, well, Jesus certainly, if he, are you kidding me? Jesus is the only one in that room that actually knows who everybody is. Yet he's being accused of not knowing who people are. The Messiah is standing in front of the one who studied the scripture to find him. And all he can do is find what's wrong with Jesus. Just think about that. Jesus told them, he said, In vain you do study the scriptures, for in them you think you find eternal life, but these are they that point to me. A person who spent his life studying scripture to try to find the Messiah has the Messiah sitting at his dinner table, and all he can do is find what's wrong with him. Don't be shocked if people try to find what's wrong with you. Don't let it change you either. And just keep being who God called you to be. Because one day, the Pharisee would realize who had sat at his table. One day, people will realize that you weren't being self-righteous, that you weren't being holier than thou, that you weren't trying to impress them, that you weren't doing X, Y, Z that you get accused of. You just were genuinely believing that you'd been touched and you were changed. And you couldn't deny that for the sake of people's comfort. And you couldn't let the fact that they hadn't been changed keep you from living like you were. See, this is what happens is sometimes we'll have this guilt where it's like we know we've been changed, but we see people who would say that they've been changed, but they haven't actually been changed. And we feel like if we live the way we know we're called to live, it's going to make them uncomfortable. Probably. But maybe that's intentional. Maybe you're supposed to make people uncomfortable when you follow Jesus if they're not. Because he sure made people uncomfortable. And then you call, he called you to be like him. Is this all right? Yeah? yeah? Are you sure? Because, all right. I'm going to keep going anyways. I just want to make sure that, you know, that you guys are all right. 
So the first time, it's all this, this, this huge change. It's you're not even where you're supposed to be. You're not even doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're here doing this, and you should be over there doing that. And so they have to change what they're doing. The next time, three and a half years after following Jesus, even when they get it wrong, they're so close to getting it right. When you actually are following Jesus and being changed by him, your worst day now looks like your best day when you weren't. That's how much your life changes. It's like the things that bother and grieve your heart now are things that you wouldn't have even considered before you started following him. Why? Because you're being changed and what used to be okay is no longer okay because he's come. And you find yourself living this way and you find yourself living changed and it's like, man, I'm telling you, you're more like Jesus today than you were yesterday. Why? Because you're following him and he's leading you away from where you were and bringing you into who you are. And if you're following him, there's not a day that doesn't go by that he doesn't lead you closer to the Father's heart and closer to who you were created to be and who you've become in him every single day. There's no like off days or scrap days or throwaway days. You may create them. Jesus doesn't. He'll patiently wait for you and let you do your thing if that's what you want to do because he's a good shepherd. The good shepherd doesn't run ahead of the sheep and scream at him. But he has no intention of having a day go by that's just a throwaway day that we don't become transformed more and more into his image. He wants every day for us to look more like him today than we did yesterday. That's why he came. It's the first time that he meets Peter and they get all these fish. Peter's response, Luke chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 8 says, When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Before he knows who Jesus is and before he understands Jesus' heart for him, when he sees Jesus and sees who he is, it's simply a reminder to him of who he's not. And all he wants to do is have Jesus get away from him because he's a sinful man. The second time, as soon as he knows it's Jesus, and he sees him, and he sees that he's on the beach. Think about this. What kind of sin do we know that Peter had committed before Jesus came and got in his boat the first time? Most biblical scholars believe they would have been you know, teenage boys, probably 17, 16, 18, somewhere in that range, maybe 19 or 20, but young guys. And, and we don't, it doesn't say like Peter was a murderer, or Peter was a thief, or Peter was an adulterer. It doesn't say any of that stuff. Like He didn't have any of the big sins hanging on him. So he probably did the things that, you know, some boys do, right? Like he caught 40 fish and took two and told him he caught 38 or, you know, skimmed a couple sardines off the top. Or maybe, you know, he, he, he looked at the girl that was on the dock longer than he should have in a way that he shouldn't have looked at her. But, but like, it wasn't like he was this horrendous, horrific sinner that we know of. And yet when he sees Jesus, all he can think of is what he's done wrong and how Jesus should be away from him because he doesn't deserve to be in front of him. The second time he sees Jesus, he sees him, and he's on the shore, and he's cooking for him. You realize it's not recorded that Jesus cooked for the disciples before that? This is what happens. This is why Peter wants to get up and jump into the water and get to the Lord, is because he looks and he realizes, he's doing things for me he didn't do before And I have failed him in ways that I never imagined that I would have, and yet he still came for me. Because think about who Peter is in this moment. He's the man who said, I'll never do that. And then he did it. And the first time, like, you could kind of, you know, understand. Like, 
It said that, that they were chasing one of the disciples and he came out of his clothes. There's naked disciples running around, people screaming. Jesus has been taken. Malchus's servant's ear has, you know, been just gushing blood in front of you and Jesus heals it. You're rattled. You have no idea what's going on. Like, like your whole world is upside down and someone says, hey, aren't you one of his followers? You're like, no. Like you kind of understand that. Maybe. I know none of you do. You guys there will all be like, yes, I am. But I might be like, no, just freaked out, not even thinking, and the answer comes out before you even know what you're doing. But then you sit down, and you hear the words of Jesus echo in your ears. For the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And you know the enemy was on him. Why? He's the accuser of the brethren. It's what he does. You're not special. He does it to everybody. How can you call yourself a follower of Jesus? Remember when you told him you would die for him? You can't even admit that you know him? Are you kidding me? And he's just pounding. So now Peter's sitting there, and he's thinking to himself, and how many of us have done this? All right, but I won't do it again. And then the thing he said he would never do that he did, he does again. Hey, you're, you're from, you're from his, his hometown. Aren't you one of his men? I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. Now he's done again what he said he would never do the first time. And now he's got to live with that. And at this point, he probably makes a a hard stance of, I will not do it again. I did it twice. I feel horrible about that, but I'm not going to do it again. All of a sudden, a little girl says, hey, aren't you one of them? And he curses and says, I don't even know the man. Suddenly, the thing he said he would never do that he did again, he's done again. And the man he said he would never let that happen to, he watches it happen to. You know, it points out that John was the only one at the cross. And, and, and we're always like, see, and, it, and rightfully so. He, you know, understood God's love for him. That was the thing that got him to the cross. And I get that whole thing. But, you know, I, part of the reason I think that it points that out is I think that Jesus noticed that only John was at the cross too. And I think it was an opportunity for him to think selfishly and look around and say, where are you at now, Peter? I think the enemy was probably telling him that. They said that they would die for you. They're not even here. You're about to die. And the man who said he'd never let that happen, he's not even here. Never mind not letting it happen. Why? Because the enemy left him alone in the desert for an opportune time. What did he do in the desert? He said, if you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do this. What's the last thing Jesus here said to him on the cross? If you're the son of God, why don't you come down? Who do you think that is speaking? He's just trying to get him to be selfish just once and think for himself because then he's not the spotless lamb. And the enemy wins. Peter's not there, and he knows he's not. And this Peter, coming fresh off the heels of doing over and over and over again what he swore to the Lord that he would never do. How many of you guys have ever been in that place where you said, I'll never do it? And then you said, I'll never do it again. And then you said, I'll never do it again. Fresh off the heels of that, When he sees Jesus, he gets in the water and gets to him as fast as he can. Why? Because when you've walked with Jesus for a while 
and you actually become changed, and you become convinced that he is who he said he is. Because in between the first time when he said get away and this time when he went running to him, something happened. Remember that? Who do you say that I am, Peter? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He sees Jesus for who he is and understands his love for him. And now, when he screws up royally, worse than he's ever screwed up in his life, all he wants to do is get to Jesus. When you follow Jesus and you're actually changed, when you get it wrong, all you want to do is get to him. You're not saying, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Why? Because you understand his love that he has for you. All you want to do is get to him. Because you've been changed. And the last thing was the, the, the fish and the nets. I'll just I'll close up with this. The first time in Luke, it points out to us, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. The second time, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. And I really felt like there's people here, and, and some people, I know your situation, and so I'm not saying this prophetically at all. I just know through knowing, but there's people here that probably I don't know about that this applies to. Sometimes God shows us something that we're not quite ready for. And he wants to actually delay doing that in our lives so that what he intends to be a blessing doesn't ruin our lives. So they start to pull in these fish and it's tearing their nets. And then Jesus doesn't do that again. And then for three and a half years, they go to following him and becoming changed and becoming like him. And then the next time he does it, they actually pull it up and it says that their nets weren't torn. And they actually were capable of stewarding what he wanted to put into their life without it being something that harmed them and ruined them. And sometimes there's a delay in between him showing you what he wants to do and him actually doing the thing that he wants to do. And it's not because he's delaying to make you miserable. It's because he wants you to become a person that's capable of stewarding what he wants to do so that when he pours it out, you can actually handle it and it becomes a blessing, not a curse. You just want to sink your boat and tear your net. He cares about you too much to do that. But he still wants to bless you. He still wants you to do what he called you to do. He still wants to see you haul that net so full of fish to shore that everybody can't believe it, and it's supernatural. He still wants to see that happen. He hasn't given up on the promise. He hasn't given up on what he's called you to. There's just been a little bit of delay because he's preparing you to be able to steward what he wants to do. Don't get frustrated and give up in the process. I wrote something down that I want to make sure I read it. Sometimes we think that failure could actually change. You know, I think that was the thing that made Peter jump into the water and want to go after Jesus that hard was because standing in the face of failure, he saw that Jesus hadn't changed his mind. Not only that, but he did something for him he'd never done for him before. Think about it. Peter sees Jesus and realizes, he came for me. He said he would come, but then I did what I did. He still came. He's never changed his mind. I'm never changing mine. Into the water he goes, gets to Jesus, and he never turns his back again. Even to the point where when it's time for him to die, he says, hang me upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified in the manner of my Lord. I just want to just tell you this. If failure could keep you from becoming who he called you to become, Peter would never become Peter. 
The only thing that can keep you from becoming who he created you to become is you not pursuing hard after him in the face of failure. If people could keep you from becoming who you were meant to become, Jesus would have never been Jesus. Because though everyone deserted him and failed him, he just kept going forward and doing what the Father called him to do. And I want to just read this to you, that even after a failure or a disaster or a, turn of, or a turn of events, where you find yourself in the natural looking like you're back where you started, you're not. Think about this. Peter could have just thought, when he said, I'm going fishing. And when he's out on that boat with his friends doing what he was doing three and a half years earlier, it would have been very easy for him to think, I'm right back where I started. I'm right back where I started. Nothing changed. Here I am. I still can't catch fish. The last time I was fishing, I didn't catch anything. This time I went fishing, I didn't catch anything. Nothing's changed. I'm no better at this than I was before. I'm right back where I started, and maybe even worse because I've lost time because I went three and a half years from where I was to where I am, and nothing's changed. Well, that, that's not true. Because even if in the natural circumstances look like nothing's changed, you've changed. You're not the same Peter that you were the first time he got in your boat. You've changed. You no longer want him to get away from you because of your sin. You want to get to him because of his love. You no longer have a net that's incapable of hauling in the fish without tearing. You've got a net that's actually capable of stewarding what it is that he wants to pour out into your life. You're no longer far away from where you're supposed to be doing what you are not supposed to be doing. You're actually right where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. You just need a little word from God and everything changes. I just want to tell you that. You're not far from where you're supposed to be doing what you're not supposed to be doing. You're actually right where you're supposed to be if you're following him, doing what you're supposed to be doing. All you need is that one word from him, that slight little change. It's just put your net on the other side of the boat. It's not a big deal. It's not like, man, you're so far. You've got to stop doing what you're doing. You've got to get in your boat. You've got to go somewhere else. The fish are not where you are. No, you're right where you're supposed to be, and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. All you need is his voice, and everything changes. So don't stop listening for it. Don't give up, and don't feel like you're no more. You're, nothing's changing right back where you started. You're not where you started because you're not the same Peter. You're not Simon anymore, the shaky reed. You're Peter, the rock. And you know him more than you knew him before. And you've become, you've become someone who actually runs to him in the face of failure rather than running from him. I feel like it's a new year. I don't know. I do. I, I said that at the beginning. Dylan said it at the first service. I, 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 just, I feel like God is doing something new and it's a starting point. And I feel like there's a grace right now. I said this Wednesday night. And listen to me, I said it Wednesday night and I believe this. I think it's always there, but for some reason in my heart, I just hear the Father and I feel like he's saying, I don't care where you've been and I don't care what you've done. I just want your heart turned towards me. Like think about the prodigal son. He goes out and he does what he does and and he, he lives the way he's not supposed to live and he does everything wrong and he thinks he screwed it up so bad that he doesn't even deserve to be a son. And he says, I'm going to go and tell my father I'm not worthy to be called your son. Let me become one of your hired servants. What's he saying? I'm going to try to work my way back into my father's favor. And so he starts coming and it says, and while he was a great way off, the father saw him. Why'd the father see him when he was a great way off? Because he's looking 
Because he's hoping and believing because love hopes all things and believes all things. And because he's not unimpressed with you just because you've decided to go live with the pigs, he still believes that you are his son. He doesn't change his mind about Peter just because Peter does what he said he'd never do. He still believes he's Peter. It's not his mind that needs to be changed, it's ours. That's why he told Mary, is it okay if I just preach for a few more minutes? Not saying I ruin anything? Okay. I'm going to do it anyways, so just say yes, you'll be on the winning team. He tells Mary, he says, go tell my brothers and Peter that I'm coming. Why does he say my brothers and Peter? Because Peter would exclude himself from being wanted by Jesus because of what he's done if he doesn't mention him by name. Because we think the things we've done wrong change his mind about us. They don't. He says, go tell my brothers and Peter I'm coming for them. What's he saying? You go tell Peter I haven't changed my mind. I'm coming for him. He hasn't changed his mind about you. He's coming for you. So while he's a great way off, the father runs to him, puts a robe on him, slippers on him, a ring on his finger. And I just, I feel like there is a grace right now and do not, like, like today is the day of salvation. I'm not saying it won't be there tomorrow. I'm just saying I know it's here today. That there's a grace that says, I don't care where you've been and I don't care what you've done. I just want your heart turned towards me and I'll overwhelm you and I'll bring you to the place I've always desired for you to be. Is there anyone here because of things that people haven't done, because of things you have done or any of that kind of stuff where you feel like you've missed it or that you've missed out on God's plan or anything like that where you feel like the things that you've done would keep you from becoming the person he said that you were to become or maybe he showed you something and then there was this delay and you turned your back and said you know what I'm just going to go fishing is there anyone here who feels that way yeah is there anybody else yeah just just raise your hand because I, I there's a grace I'm telling you just just keep your hands up for a second yeah, raise them up right where you are. Come on. It, like, this isn't a shameful thing. This is an exciting thing of saying, like, I believe the lie, and now truth has come, and I'm responding to truth. That's what it is. Like, it should be an exciting thing of, like, I'm not going to listen to the lie ever again because truth has come. I can't go back to being a man of unclean lips because the coal touched me. That's what this moment is saying. Like, I believe that. I believe that. So if that's you, just stand up right where you are. If you raised your hand, go ahead. Please just stand up where you are. Don't be, I mean, I promise you, everyone's stoked that you're standing up. Yeah. And this is, I just, I just want to tell you that when Jesus gave the story of the prodigal, it wasn't so that we would have something to know what the father was like. It's so that we know who he is and what he is like, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So right now, this is you in your heart taking a step back towards home. And you may have a story rehearsed in your head where you're like, oh, I've made up too much of a mess. I've sinned too much. I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. I'm going to go and I'm going to work my way back. You know what I'm talking about. You don't have to work your way back. You can't work your way back. You realize that the son says that to himself, but he never gets a chance to say it to the father because he says to the father, I've sinned and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can tell him his plan, the father shuts his mouth and doesn't let him even say the rest. Why? Because he sees he doesn't believe that he's worthy to be called my son. I'm going to show him so that he never says that again. He puts a robe around him. 
you realize that, that when you would, when you, a robe was what you were known by. It's why when David walked around in Jonathan's robe, Saul thought he was Jonathan because he knew him by his robe. What was he saying? I'm not embarrassed for everybody to see my son, no matter where you've been and what you've done. I'm not waiting till you get to the house and you get cleaned up and you straighten up your act before I identify with you. I'll, I'll let everybody see you who knows, knows where you were. I'll let them see you and I'll identify with you. And I'm not ashamed of you. I don't care if everybody watching knows where you just were. You're my child. And I'm not ashamed of you. He puts that robe around him. He puts slippers on his feet. And I think he's just saying to him, I don't even want you bringing the dust of that old life back to where I have you. I don't even want you bringing the dust of that old life where I have you. So here's some slippers for your feet. And he puts a ring. It's a sign of covenant. And it's another way of him saying, I want everyone to know you belong to me. I'm not ashamed of you. And you notice he doesn't say, oh, look, that son of mine is coming back up the road. I wondered when he'd be back. He's pretty far gone. I'm not sure if he's changed yet. You know what? Just, we'll just wait. We'll just stay on the porch. And if he's serious, we'll see how long he keeps coming. Because it's a long walk. And yeah, maybe right now he's walking because, you know, he's tired of being in the pig slop. But let's make him prove he's really serious before we... No, the Father had none of that. Why? Because he's love and he hopes all things and believes all things. And when he sees that you've taken one step towards him, he comes running to you. And that's what he's doing right now. Right. Right now. So just, just hold your hands out and receive that. This story of the prodigal son is not... It's not a story so that we can wish we were alive to know the Father that was. It's so that we're thankful we're alive and can know the Father that is. And if that's who he was, then that's who he is. And if he would run to that one, he would run to you. And if he would put a robe around that one, he'll put it around you. And if he would put slippers on his feet, he'll put them on yours and a ring on the finger. And if he would say, kill the fatted calf and let's celebrate, when all you can think about is what you've done wrong, What's he saying? All he's saying is this. My plan for your life has not changed one bit in the second you return to me. You get restored. And here's the great thing. He gets a seat at a table that he never even realized before was already his. And he gets a fatted calf killed for him in a party throne that he'd never had before. And he gets to stay there. So Father, would you just come right now and wrap these people that are standing in that robe of righteousness and put those slippers and shod their feet with the gospel of truth and put that ring of covenant on their finger. Father, I thank you that you have no interest in us trying to work our way back in. God, that you just receive us as your sons and your daughters and you restore us and we just get back up and we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. And then the other thing I want to say is, is there anyone here who feels like they failed and they screwed up God's plan for their life? And they feel like what they've done wrong would keep them from actually the plan that God had for them. Is there anybody that would say that? Yeah. Yeah. Man, what a lie. Yeah, what a lie. Just stand up where you are. I'm going to pray for you real quick. Actually, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I don't know what you've done. doesn't matter. Because I know what he did. And I believe that what he did is greater than anything that you've done. And so I just want to tell you this. If 
Peter could deny Jesus three times in one day and curse at a little girl and say he didn't even know him and God could still use him, I promise you God can still use you. And you haven't made a mess of things to the point that he can't straighten it out because he came to make the crooked path straight. So here's what I'm going to do. I, I just want you to believe this and then I want you to do what, Jesus, what, what Peter did. Because here's what Peter did that enabled him to be who God called him to be. When he saw Jesus and saw that he hadn't changed his mind, his response was to run to Jesus and pursue him. You just keep pursuing him as hard as you've ever pursued or harder than you've ever pursued him in your life. And don't let your failure keep you from doing that. Just keep pursuing him. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you that we can come harder after you now than even before we failed because we see your great love for us and we understand you haven't changed your mind. And we just run to you. We let nothing keep us from coming. Whatever we got to run through, swim through, doesn't matter. Our only desire is to get to you and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.